Welcome to Exhale, a podcast series where we explore topics on spirometry and respiratory care. Your hosts are Mark Russell, Marketing Communications Manager, and Jansen Lanier, National Sales Manager and Respiratory Therapist for Vitalograph US, a global leader in respiratory diagnostics. Mark and Jansen had a chance to interview Dr. Maylon Hahn, a leading pulmonologist who has authored a new book called Breathing Lessons. It takes readers on a fascinating tour of this most vital organ, the lungs. Dr. Hahn explains the wonders of breathing and reveals how the lungs serve as the body's first line of defense. Well, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. Can you please give us a little background on yourself, education, experience, and your current responsibilities? Sure. So I actually was originally born in the Midwest, uh, ended up growing up in Idaho, though, because my dad was a nuclear engineer, actually. And then I did medical school, undergraduate and medical school in Seattle, and then did a full circle and ended up back in the Midwest at the University of Michigan for residency and fellowship. Uh, I am a pulmonologist. I'm actually the chief of pulmonary and critical care medicine at the University of Michigan. I actually, you know, growing up in Idaho and then training in Seattle, really thought that I was going to stay in the Northwest. There's a huge need for doctors, particularly in rural locations. And that was a huge emphasis for the training program that I did. But I've always really wanted to figure out how I can help the most number of people. And I think we all are just looking for where that sweet spot is, where we can really contribute. And it just, for me, ended up uh, actually being in a specialty as opposed to primary care. I really fell in love with pulmonary medicine during my uh, residency. It's funny, a lot of people say, well, you know, why did you go into cardiology or why did you go into nephrology? It's not because anyone really loves the organ so much. It's Mm -hmm. because you love the people you work with and the kind of work that you do. And And I also ended up falling in love with the kinds of patients that I care for. I've been at the University of Michigan since 1999 now. Wow. So, uh, but just took over as division chief just this past year. So it's been a a really sort of exciting and fulfilling experience for me. Although obviously the the pandemic threw us all, all a loop we were not anticipating. Oh, I bet. And and congratulations on the promotion. It's one of those where... You know, I've seen a lot of uh, transitions during the pandemic. How has that transition been for you? It's been good. It's been a little stressful. You know, one of the things that we're seeing, unfortunately, is that many, many chiefs across the country have either stepped down or in the process of stepping down because pulmonary providers are so burnt out from the pandemic and a lot of the chiefs that were trying to just hold things together and keep staffing in place are just completely burned out. So a lot of people that if they were thinking about retirement or close to retirement have now retired. So there are actually quite a few open positions. I was really excited to be able to have the opportunity to stay at my home institution. The um, faculty at the University of Michigan for pulmonary are just amazing and it's a really incredible place and so I'm just really excited about the opportunity. Wonderful. What can you tell the upcoming pulmonologists? You, you said people are getting burnt out or the pulmonologists are getting burnt out. What can the, the new up-and-coming pulmonologists be told or, or informed of that can kind of help them get over the initial shock once they jump out into the field? You know, unfortunately, I think burnout is something that is systemic. It's not just pulmonary. Our poor hospitalists are extremely overloaded right now as well. 
And I think, unfortunately, also the advent of the electronic medical record has really added to the physician workload. They keep increasing the number of things that you have to do to meet, you know, billing requirements, et cetera. But it all, almost all is falling on the backs of physicians. In fact, I was looking at a recent report, the number of just messages that come into our electronic inbox and patients using the portal, which is good. We want them to be able to get a hold of us, but it just means that we haven't, as physicians, gotten any more hours in our day. And so the amount of work, physicians are even up at two, three, four in the morning trying to get charting done. So it's a systemic problem. I, at this point, you know, I don't think, I wouldn't want someone to shy away from going into medicine simply because of it. There's still many, many joys of being in medicine and pulmonary is a specialty in particular that is needed now more than ever. And, And so, you know, I still very much love what I do. And I think as a as a profession and as well as the health systems, we are realizing that we have to much more systematically address burnout. We have to figure out ways to let people actually unwind. We have to help physicians and other healthcare providers be more efficient. And I don't think that there is any one magic bullet that's going to fix all of it, but I think perhaps the first step is realizing it's a problem. and. Yeah. And at least there has been some enhanced recognition, at least at the University of Michigan, from an institutional perspective, that it that it is really a problem. I agree. So your book, Breathing Lessons, tell us what inspired you to write this book. So it's actually a little bit of a fun story. So I've been interested in patient advocacy for quite some time. One of the things that's been frustrating to me is that historically levels of funding for lung disease have been low. There's low public awareness. And in many instances, the patients themselves are sort of the least able to advocate for themselves. For instance, children with asthma are not going to be organizing a support group. You know, even some of our older patients, for instance, with lung cancer and COPD in particular, there's been quite a bit of stigma associated with those diseases. And so it's been difficult to garner attention and support. And now we're here in the middle of a respiratory pandemic. And I think we're realizing that the underinvestment in lung disease is now coming back to bite us because we really didn't have any good treatments for lung injury before the pandemic. And we still don't. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was getting bombarded with questions from the media about how the lungs work. What is a mechanical ventilator? Why are patients still dying even if we have mechanical ventilators? And I realized, you know, I'm a spokesperson for the American Lung Association, and I realized in doing the various interviews that we as a profession, as pulmonologists, have not done a great job in explaining to patients and explaining to the lay public exactly how the lungs work or how we support failing lungs. And so I realized that there was a need. And I actually had an opportunity to do an episode of a different podcast, Freakonomics. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of fun and got to explain in very simple terms how the lungs worked and how mechanical ventilators worked. And a publisher and editor at Norton in New York actually heard the podcast and contacted me about the book. And he also realized that there really wasn't much on the market to explain to patients how their lungs work. 
how do we go about diagnosing lung disease? And as we started to, he and I worked together to envision what the book might look like. I also wanted to include a couple of other things. There's a whole section in the book on how to protect your lungs over the lifetime. Mm -hmm. I don't think people realize that lung development, yes, it starts in the womb, but it actually continues all the way through probably your mid-20s. And so we can really think about protection and injury. And when we think about even proactive behaviors that we can take, we have to think about, again, what's going on in the womb, what's going on during the lung development period, and then what happens in adulthood. And I think there's so much more we can do that's proactive uh, than, than people realize that I wanted to get the term lung health out into the public consciousness. We think about things like heart health all the time. Why don't we talk about, why don't we think about things like lung health? So that was one additional section of the book. And then the final wrapper for the book, I really took a deep dive into the history of pulmonary medicine and how how things have evolved and, and why pulmonary now finds itself in this position of underdiagnosis, of lack of funding, of having a not very robust pipeline, for instance, even with pharmaceutical companies as compared to other chronic diseases, and why we really can't afford to, to continue down that path. Again, some of the most interesting research for me that's come out of the pandemic relates to pre-existing illness or coexisting lung illness. So there was a study done by researchers at Harvard just looking at the impact of wildfire exposure in the American West on COVID last year. And what they found were, I think, roughly, hopefully I'm not getting this figure wrong, roughly 20,000 more cases of COVID that were attributed to just lungs being exposed to particulate matter in the air from the wildfires. In other words, breathing in that, those toxins caused pre-existing lung inflammation that then made the lungs more susceptible to COVID. They also reported an excess of 750 deaths just related to, again, that, that pre-existing exposure. And then here at the University of Michigan, some of my colleagues in pathology just did this really fascinating study where they looked at patients who had had biopsies for after they had contracted COVID and had long-haul COVID. And they actually, for some of them, happened to have data pre-existing contracting the virus. And what they found was that a certain percentage of patients actually had inflammation or abnormal CAT scans prior to even contracting COVID. And so what this makes me wonder is we've been trying, we've been scratching our heads trying to figure out why is it some patients do well with COVID? Why is it that some have severe disease? And I am beginning to wonder whether it is underlying undiagnosed lung inflammation, concurrent exposures. Absolutely. That, that were there under the surface we don't screen for lung disease. I mean, think about it. You go into the doctor's office. How many times have you had your heart rate, your blood pressure checked? Every you know, time. Right. Have you ever had your lung function checked? No. No, no. Myself, I've worked in the hospital system. I was uh, exposed to tuberculosis. And, and of course, the hospital had a treatment for me. And then now, ever since then, they said every five years, you need to have a x-ray of your lungs. And mm. I wasn't exposed, then how else would you know, you know, your progress of your lung function? And as for me, I, I've never been asked, how is your lung health, right? Um, you know, the main question is, are you a smoker or not, yeah. right? They never ask about your environmental experiences. I grew up in Houston, Texas, where there's refineries everywhere. Uh, yeah. You know, that there's some obstruction just based on just upbringing, right? Yeah. So going to your book, you know, one of my favorite chapters there is how pulmonologists think. 
And basically, the, the reason I say it's my favorite is because if I'm a patient that's reading this book and going through the experiences, and maybe I've already been to the pulmonologist, maybe I've been through the process, but then it kind of goes into why did I go through this process? And it kind of talks about the medical interview. You know, you're talking with them, you're seeing what's going on, talking about PFTs, why I'm doing PFTs and so forth. It's just, it's important for the patient to see kind of that perspective. Yeah, that was actually a fun section of the book for me to write. One of the problems I think is that the lungs have been kind of a black box for people. And I think if you don't understand something, then you can't advocate for yourself. And so I thought it was important first to explain how the lungs work, but also to understand why is the doctor asking the questions they are? Why are they ordering the tests that they are? And also, you know, if you have a physician, maybe you aren't in with a pulmonologist or even if you are, maybe there's some questions they should be asking and they aren't or information in your history that's really relevant. And knowing what's relevant would be helpful for you to have that conversation and, and to bring it up because it's it can be challenging for, for us as physicians. We don't always have all the time we'd like to have, right? So right. if patients can arm themselves, then that's so much more powerful in helping them to promote their own health. You know, it's kind of the first line of defense uh, against any type of lung disease. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, I think, you know, it's trying to prevent getting lung disease in the first place, but then it's also, you know, if there is a problem, how do you advocate for yourself? I did a study a few years ago, and there have been several studies that have confirmed this. When we look, for instance, at COPD, which is one of the most chronic lung diseases in the country, only a third of patients have actually had confirmatory testing. And so I, I make this analogy in the book. It would be like, just telling two thirds of the population, oh, you've got high blood pressure and you know what, I'm gonna start you on, on medication. But you never check the blood pressure and you never check, you never check the blood pressure again after you start the medication. Sure. And, and that would never be acceptable for other diseases or you know diabetes, we follow the blood sugar and then we start you on medications and then we see what happens. But somehow we've gotten to this place where for pulmonary medicine that that's acceptable. And I think what we're finding is that this has contributed, I think, to the bind that we're in right now with COVID-19. I agree. You know, we're in respiratory diagnostics and we have some devices that kind of track your daily monitoring, right? For cystic fibrosis patients, asthma allergy patients, as well as the lung uh, transplant patients, right? So very much in the same situation, somebody is diagnosed with diabetes, they're given a blood glucose monitor and that connects to their phone, and they're updated all the time uh, where they're at. And then all of a sudden, when you think about the lungs, nobody's tracking post giving an inhaler. You know, I'm not trying to plug a product, but it's one of those things where we need to have something that continuously monitors what, what's going on with those patients, how they're doing. And that kind of goes even to the post-COVID. Okay, post-COVID patient goes home and doc says, hey, call me if you get any worse, right? Something like that. Or, or how are we tracking these long haulers other than bringing them in whenever they're not feeling good? You know what I mean? So I'd like to see for, for this to kind of branch out a little bit further. So we're actually monitoring respiratory health as we continue with said disease. 
Yeah, I think it's a really, it's a twofold problem. So one is that we're going to have a large number of patients with a new respiratory disease, right? That didn't exist before. So long haul COVID, they actually just, as far as I know, approved the ability for such patients to actually go to pulmonary rehabilitation. So it's sort of a new diagnosis code that we can now use yep. uh, to bill for pulmonary rehabilitation. But I think just as important, if not more important, is on is on the other end of the spectrum, where my concern is that we have a lot of patients with undiagnosed lung disease or poorly monitored Absolutely. lung disease or misdiagnosed lung disease. And I think you can make the case for many years, I think the problem was that many physicians and patients even just felt like, well, it doesn't matter. I can get it wrong. As long as somebody isn't really complaining, then it's okay. And now we're finding out that, well, no, <laughs> actually, if, if there is a problem, it, it potentially can balloon into other problems. Absolutely. Part of the problem, though, is it's a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario. So if you look back, and this was fun, I, I did some research for the book just trying to understand the history of the evolution of, for instance, spirometry versus the blood pressure cuff. And physicians really adopted the idea of taking blood pressure early on in the 1900s, in part because, this is going to sound silly, but I think they thought it made them look cool. And they wanted to distinguish their skill set from that of nurses. And so they could go into, you know, the, the home of a wealthy client and whip out their stethoscope and blood pressure cuff and look very, very, you know, intelligent. And, and so doctors just liked doing it. And it wasn't until later when we had large studies like Framingham Heart Study, when we found out that actually that kind of information correlates with stroke and heart attacks. And then we learned about cholesterol and, and all of a sudden now we have all these amazing drugs for high blood pressure and cholesterol. But the spirometer, which was a bit clunkier to begin with, couldn't easily be taken into someone's home, just never really caught on with physicians. And then because of that, we really haven't generated as much of an evidence basis. Not We know that, that lung function is associated with things like mortality, but the issue is, can we do something about it in a way that would ultimately change where the patient is? What are the differences in long-term outcomes that we can make? And the problem is we don't have a Framingham-like study for lung. For instance, trying to prove that screening for lung disease makes a difference has been challenging. And so it becomes a bit of a chicken and egg scenario. We don't have the data, so we can't prove that it's effective necessarily. And then nobody wants to pay for it because there's no data to prove that it's necessarily can change outcomes. And it just goes on and on and on. And one of the things that's been frustrating for me is I would have thought, I would have hoped that with the pandemic, people would have said, oh, my goodness, all these patients are dying of a respiratory disease. Why don't we have better treatments for patients with severe lung injury, as you know, we call that uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS? Why don't we have ways to better support people on ventilators or who knows, other ways to support patients with failing lungs? And yet that question really hasn't been asked yet. Most of the money has gone towards vaccines, which is amazing, and new treatments, which, which of course is good for trying to, you know, antivirals, for instance. But shockingly little has actually gone into understanding lung injury, how to support failing lungs, how to diagnose lung disease, you know, well before you get COVID. 
And so I, I really feel like that if we're going to be prepared for the next pandemic, that's got to change. Absolutely. In working with new patients, how do you provide a treatment plan for them? You know, the, the whole transition right now for new patients, especially, is, is very different. Tell Are me you talking you, about lung patients in general? Just yeah, lung patients in general. Yeah, let, let's just say you have a new patient coming in and how do you start working your treatment plan, period? So you're right, it's been a little bit challenging for pulmonary as we've changed our workflows and switched over to more virtual care because we do rely on pulmonary function tests usually for those new patient visits in particular, which are difficult to get remotely. <laughs> so we've got a kind of some hybrid scenarios going on. Uh, we still are trying to get new patients into the office in the ideal setting. and for me, the kind of test that a new patient gets will vary depending on the lung disease. So we try to get some kind of spirometry or breathing test, I think, in the majority of patients. For some patients, we're also going to need, for instance, a six-minute walk to see how much they desaturate. And for some patients, we may need a CAT scan, depending on what the issue is. Sometimes we are still doing patients virtually for those new visits, in, in which case, we maybe I'll send them somewhere. I, I know trying to get remote spirometry up for certain portions of the U.S., including my hospital, have been challenging. We were able to get remote spirometry set up for a subsegment of our patient population, in particular our CF and transplant patient populations that need to be followed extremely closely, particularly after transplant. But, uh, you know, for the majority of our patients, we're still trying to get them into the office, although albeit probably doing fewer measurements perhaps than we did before the pandemic. So tell us with uh, children, when does the lungs completely fully develop in their growth pattern? And what can you tell us about children's health? How, how can we keep them healthy? That's a great question. So, uh, you know, the lungs began forming in the womb, obviously. Uh, what's interesting is I did some research again for the book and I personally did not realize that nicotine exposure itself, and it doesn't matter whether that's through an electronic cigarette or a conventional cigarette, nicotine exposure actually can predispose children to getting abnormally long and tortuous airway development, um, which can then predispose children to having too much resistance in the airways and, and predispose for what we call obstructive conditions like asthma. So nicotine exposure in utero is really bad, regardless of how it happens. Once children are born, you know, there's actually, some people may, may not be aware, there's actually a little bit of a delay in the lung sac development for boys as compared to girls. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that's why we see, for instance, for premature children, boys are at increased risk for developing some of the infant respiratory distress syndromes. We were seeing more and more prematurity. Uh, my son was born premature, so I, you know, I, We've got better technology, but I think we're trying to, what the ultimate impact uh, on, on lung development for children, say, 20 years from now, I think is a big question. So there's some things that are under our control and some things that are not. Obviously, you know, you may not have control over when your child is born, but vaccinations are incredibly important. We know that repeated respiratory infections can probably impact uh, lung function and development over time. But then there are other things such as air pollution and secondhand smoke exposure. So we know, for instance, that when you put a school, an elementary school near a freeway, just the increased particulate matter in the air, that air pollution 
uh, will exacerbate asthma for some children and, and worsen lung function that can improve if children are moved away from that environment. So unfortunately, we can't always pick, for instance, what school our children go to, but you can certainly talk to your school about what factors can be done to try to mitigate against that. For instance, the, you know, I'm a, I mentioned I'm a spokesperson for the American Lung Association. They have on their website information about anti-idling policies that schools can adopt to try to at least not bring in more vehicle-associated emissions into the environment where children are. You know, obviously not having secondhand smoke in the home uh, is, is another key thing uh, that that would be ideal for development. But one of the interesting things that you may not realize is that the lungs don't actually hit peak lung function until they're about 25. Oh, wow. So I know we tend to think about, well, 18 is an adult, but that's somewhat of an arbitrary cutoff. Sure, it, may be the, it may be the voting age, but it's not what your lungs consider to be full grown. And so actually there has been a movement in place across the country and finally got put into law nationwide, but this sort of tobacco 21 movement. And, mm. um, and, and from a development standpoint, it makes tons of sense. We really need to this is going to sound a bit paternalistic, but take the decision out of someone's hands until they're actually, their lungs are sort of full grown because we really need to give everyone the opportunity to sort of hit that peak development. Now, after that, unfortunately, we all decline with age. So during that upward trajectory, you want to protect the lungs and promote growth. And then after that, it's all about slowing decline. Right. Uh, so I have a, a six and a nine-year-old daughters. And okay. both of them were premature and, okay. and we're kind of at a spot right now where vaccinations for pediatrics are, are there. Um, I know that this may be a touchy segment, but uh, if you're willing to, can you chime in on, on your thoughts of vaccination for COVID especially yeah. for the pediatric realm? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have an eight-year-old, so I get it. Yeah. Uh, it's one thing to yourself sign up for a vaccine. Oh, it's yeah. another thing to to have your child do so. And and I also realize that parents are going through sort of this mental risk benefit calculation, right? You know, the older you are, the more likely it is that you would have severe COVID. So it on some level feels like that risk benefit analysis works out a little bit better for older individuals. But for kids, I know I have a lot of friends that have sort of hit the pause button and are saying to themselves, well, is it really worth it? What I would say is I did sign my son up for vaccination the second I was able to, and he is vaccinated and he's doing fine. The good news is, is that we have enough children vaccinated that we are starting to accumulate quite a bit of safety data. And I know that that has been a huge concern for a lot of parents. Just what, you know, is it really safe? This is new. What do we know about side effects? There have been some reports of cardiac inflammation in the 12 to sort of that 12 to 16-year-old adolescent group with vaccines, although still overall very rare. But what I think parents have to realize is that for the majority of side effects that have been reported with the vaccine, so the exact same side effects that are associated with COVID <laughs> infection itself, and that the rate of some of those things happening is higher with COVID than the vaccinations themselves. And in the 5 to 12 group, I think overall the safety data has looked really, really good. And so for me, there's still a really strong argument to do it. And to be honest, I think you have to look not just at your children, but you've also got to look at your community and you've got to look at your even your small 
family pod, whatever you want to call it. We all have our little units that we've been kind of co-quarantining with. And so for me, for instance, I have a 70-something-year-old mother and a 101-year-old grandmother that are in my quarantine pod. And so I have to think about risk as a family as well. And and the final thing I don't think a lot of people realize is that at the beginning of the pandemic, Delta and pre-Delta, well, I would say pre-Delta, we didn't have a lot of kids that were getting infected. That is not not the case for Omicron. I'm actually on the board of my son's school as well as the COVID risk committee, and we've been doing weekly testing for over a year now. So I can tell you that the number of cases we are picking up is probably 20-fold over what we picked up last year. Easily, easily. We're we're here in Kansas City, and we have the school closed this week for a short time just to regroup. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. that situation with the with the holiday today, they felt it was a great timing to close that couple of extra days. Plus, they've got a lot of staff and people that are out, and they got to get a recruit situation for the schools. And because uh, of the large number of children that are becoming infected, um, even though the risk for children of severe disease is lower, the overall number of children being hospitalized has shot up significantly in the last two weeks. So. Yeah. As a nation, the number of hospitalizations for children with COVID has skyrocketed. Again, your book is a breathing lessons. I'm sure it's available and where you get most of your books publication anywhere else. Do you have a website? I do have a website, drmelanhan.com. I'm also on all the various social channels. I also do have a small YouTube channel that people can check out. There is a page on the website that explains where you can get the book, but it is essentially available at every single major retailer. Yeah, like, yeah, Amazon, the, all, yeah. the, all the good ones. Sure. Yeah. Well, Mion, thank you so much. I think this has been very inspiring. A great topic about a new book, which called Breathing Lessons. It really intrigued me on social media, and I appreciate you being on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Exhale with Vitalograph. Your hosts are Mark Russell and Jansen Lanier. We hope you enjoyed what you heard today. If you're wanting more information about Maylon's new book, visit her website, www.drmaylonhan.com front slash breathing lessons book. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again on Exhale with Vitalograph.